This is Josh, your Times Square host, reminding you that we have a website, blackcracker.fm, with lovely photos of the old guys and dolls that you hear on this podcast. Some were Polaroids taken by me, others by photographers who accompanied me back on Old Broadway. And I have a blog and clicks to my books and albums. That's blackcracker.fm. Now, come bend your ears to another lost voice of New York. I was stalking hoes in the center of town. Check it out, right here. This is Show World Center. I had a show Welcome to Tales of Times Square, the tapes. I'm Josh Allen Friedman. Caddy corner from the Port Authority bus terminal, and directly across from Show World Center is a narrow entrance to the 8th Avenue subway. Thousands of commuters squeeze up and down the steps at rush hour, but most of the time it's the fabled corner of 8th Avenue and 42nd Street, the corner of all corners in Times Square. At 259 West 42nd Street is a sparkling window display of knives, swords, handcuffs, fake police badges, and mountains of low-budget porn magazines. Male hustlers congregate, Hookers and dime store wigs, beat drug dealers hiss, loose joints, loose joints, and Puerto Rican gangs cruise through. Even disoriented Midwestern tourists with fat wallets in the back of their Hawaiian shorts, wearing black socks up to the knee, those wallets are ripe for the picking. But halfway down the subway steps is an escape, a video game parlor for ghetto kids who come down to play. Just dozens of kids blocking out the world, lost in Pac-Man and Space Invaders, about 50 machines in this old penny arcade. There's black teenagers from Brooklyn and Harlem on the town to catch a cheap kung fu movie at Tad's Steak and empty their pocket change in the arcade, having a lock before they catch the A-train. This penny arcade is operated by one old man who has outlasted all the others on 42nd Street. It's 1983 and we're in the Penny Arcade in the subway at the corner of 8th Avenue, the bowels of 42nd Street. It's open from 8 in the morning until 3 a.m. Charles Rubenstein, 83 years old, through a lifetime of aggravation, has run this amusement parlor since 1939. The subway authority now wants him closed at 1 a.m. Charles went for a three-day hearing at the Department of Consumer Affairs to argue his case to remain open until 3 a.m. Though there may be bedlam outside, the customers in here are relatively tame, lost in the pinball and Pac-Man games. The mean streets above, he says, are not his problem, but the transit authority seems to be scapegoating him for attracting the social ills of 42nd Street. We're sitting in Mr. Rubenstein's little office in the arcade at night. What takes place out of our place, I'm not responsible of course. for anything doing. Would you say in 44 years in this location, you've never had one crime 
no, I on never, the premises. On the premises, well, no. What does that say for the, uh, for the arcade? The, just the sensibility of an arcade. It's, this is an amusement place. It's an amusement it's, place. It's, we do not let no one hang around. We do not let no one congregate. We tell them to get out of our premises. Only outside, customers. Outside, I don't care what you do. That's, that's not my business. We, we see somebody even smoking a reefer coming. I said, you get the hell out of here. Yeah. Don't come in here and get and us in trouble. you got every kind of See? fake drug deal. I throw them right them. upstairs. You do what you want outside, not in this premises. You're going to have plenty of lip. You're yeah. going to have arguments, but you'll have to get used to it. It's to get them out of here. Once yeah. they're out of here, I don't care what they do. It's not my business no, no. more. I have nothing to do with it. See, the same thing as I got a, a, a store in the street. What do I care what they do out in the sidewalk? Let the authorities take care of them. And then they tried to restrict me on hours. And I says, why should they restrict me how many hours I should keep open and should be closed? Let the authorities clean it up. They can do it in 24 hours, but they ain't doing nothing. You come down here four, five, three in the morning, it's impossible to walk on 42nd Street with all the hoodlums and all the gangs and all the riffraff that's up there. Well. Just what did lie up the steps from Charlie's Arcade at the corner of 8th Avenue in 1983? The world-renowned lowlifes of 42nd Street who reached fever pitch at 3 a.m. Scar-faced boogeymen intermingling like roaches in a garbage spill, jabbering simultaneously in each other's faces, none of them communicating. Slum snot hatefully hawked out of flaring nostrils, strands of phlegm coughed out onto the sidewalks, each offering an opinion of the world. Brain-damaged evangelists, 300-pound prostitutes in dime-store wigs and high heels. Winos passed out and festering in their own vomit in doorways, most of them having slit pockets from scavengers searching for their wine bottle change. What's not to love? Oh, upstairs is the unbearable. Did you, did you ever try to come up here at 3, 4 in the morning on that street and see what's going on? There's not a policeman there. I have. There. I have. Did, did you I see? I just walk very fast. Uh, uh, do you see the, the atmosphere up there? Yeah. Why, you got to be crazy to walk that street. It's like hell. It's hell is right. And it's because as they got said. liberal laws and there's nothing they can do about it. This is pretty much what Charlie's ears have heard 16 hours a day for 60 years. Aggravation, and plenty of it. You think it's easy to find full-time coin machine mechanics who can remain sober? To keep fake coin slugs out of machines? To bounce out hoodlums and deal with the transit authority? Back in 1954, he installed operatic records on the theory they would repel undesirable patrons, the juvenile delinquents of that era, and elevate the tone of the establishment. The official name of this establishment, which Charlie opened above the subway at 8th Avenue and 42nd Street in 1939, is called While You Wait Photos. Um, 
the entire neighborhood has changed. It's an entirely different neighborhood from it was 44 years ago. Every theater has changed. Every business almost has left. And you've held out and, and refused to move from this neighborhood and kept uh, an honest place going like this. How do you account for that? Why do you, why do you stay put like this for well, years? Well, first place, we're making our living. And if we can pay expenses, which is very high here, we're not going to go out. Uh, we have rough times today. Comparison to when I came here, this was an entirely different neighborhood. Tell me about that See, when you first opened. When we opened up here, we had all legitimate theaters, beautiful theaters. And people used to come down here with tuxedos and evening gowns and doing the intermission. We didn't have video games in those days. We had other amusement games. And those people used to come downstairs and play the games and enjoy themselves. No one was there to attack them, to molest them, to... Uh, it was unthinkable back then. See? Uh, the world. Well, uh, so naturally, we kept going. Uh, but we saw the changes about 1965. We saw already that the good people are not coming down thing. But you would pinpoint it as 1965 as a year where you suddenly saw, saw the, the change, difference. Yeah. Whereas 1964 still would have been... Yeah, 64, 63, it was still all right. 65, 66, then I saw the change and I says, well, uh, it's gone too bad, but somewhere or other... 42nd Street and the downfall of old Broadway. Apparently, prominent citizens like Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis were less than delighted. This was not Camelot. Mrs. Onassis joined the board of directors of the 42nd Street Development Corporation, which was central to the mission of cleaning up Times Square. A monumental effort to reverse 42nd Street's fall from grace and, in their words, create a river-to-river -river grand boulevard that would become a magnet for private investment, visitors, jobs, and tax revenues. This effort began in 1976 and reached critical mass when Rudolph Giuliani became mayor in 1994. It was through Giuliani that his police commissioner, William Bratton, adopted the famous broken windows theory of urban decay. For the first time, quality of life violators like squeegee bandits shaking down motorists at stoplights, panhandlers, street drunks, graffiti vandals were arrested en masse. For example, they surmised that most muggers in Times Square would have jumped the subway turnstiles to get there. So turnstile jumpers were prioritized for arrest, a major deterrent preventing untold numbers of muggings. But here's Charlie back in 1983 before this happened. As far as the element is concerned, I don't, I'm going to repeat one thing. If you want to have a change in 42nd Street, you must start from 34th Street going up to 50th Street and 8th Avenue, come down to 7th Avenue, come back to 42nd Street and 7th Avenue, tear every building down, and maybe you would have a change of the neighborhood. But so long you tear one building down and you have the low prices with the low theaters, low price theaters and movies and peep shows and cheap bars and hotels and whatnot, and you have that glamorous lights floating around. You are not going to change this neighborhood for any money, especially 
your bus terminal that brings in all the people from all over the world. And this is the dumping ground of 42nd Street. You gonna have a change? No, sir. The police do a good job. The police work very hard. But if you talk to the people, you don't get nowhere. You have to come back and use that nightstick. And I say, let them use it to have discipline and respect. You know, human beings is animals, just like animals. If the horse don't pull the wagon, what does the driver do? Takes that whip, giddy up, and starts and hitting, and the horse starts running. Same thing with the human being. I say, if you don't have any discipline, and you don't shake them up, you ain't gonna get nowhere. You ain't gonna get nowhere. It's a joke what, what's going on here. It's a joke to see all these people. They're good people. There's nothing wrong with the people. The people are fine, they're nice, they're good, but they got to have a little discipline, they got to have a little force, and they got to be shook up. How many police did I see giving summonses to those hoodlums? How many summonses they give out a day, I don't know. But they tear them, they tear them up, and they throw them away. They see people, they mug them, they rob them, and where's the policeman? He's busy with so many different incidents. And I still say, like Theodore Roosevelt said once, as the commissioner of the city of New York, and when he was commissioner, he says, men, don't make any arrests. There's more law out of an end of a nightstick than all your courts put together and go out and use them. And I say, let them use them. Did but you ever get hit by a police officer's stick when you were a kid? Well, when I was a kid, I made sure that I don't stay on a street corner because I was afraid of that stick. See? I wouldn't go there. And Where I, did and you grow up? In the Lower East Side? I was raised on the Lower East Side, and then I raised all through my life with uh, in Harlem. Charlie also ran a penny arcade on 125th Street in Harlem, near the Apollo, which he opened in 1932. Like the peep shows that dominate Times Square in 1983, Charlie makes his living from coins. The proprietors of penny arcades were referred to as coin men in the trade. His arcade in Harlem had 70 coin-operated machines, according to a 1953 article I found in Billboard magazine. I, I was in Harlem from 1932 to 1972. And in 1968 or 70, I saw the change. The neighborhood changes, the people moved away, different elements come in, and they start in uh, vandalizing the buildings sure. and, uh, and uh, walking into your place and putting matches to it. And, but you hold on to this place, nevertheless, uh, even though this neighborhood is just as bad as uh, 125th guy. Well, uh, I was offered some good proposition, so I gave up 125th Street all through the years. People were retiring, my good people, people that was with me for 30 years, and uh, the new help that was coming in was you couldn't... Uh, bear with them, they didn't want to work, they didn't care to do anything, and change and change, and ads went into newspapers and didn't get a reply, and people just didn't want to come to Harlem to work, yeah. and I figured, well, let me close it up, and that's it, and I closed up the place. Something happened around 1980 that revolutionized the dying penny arcade business. Computerized video games took off. 
Pac-Man was released, and in 1982, Ms. Pac-Man became a phenomenon, generating a few billion dollars in quarters and becoming the most successful arcade game in America. These video games innovated new technology like sound cards and faster processors that would advance uh, the personal computer era. In 1983, the year I'm talking with Charlie here, the arcade video game industry surpassed the music and film industries combined, generating $8 billion in quarters. So Charles Rubenstein, who had been running Penny Arcade since the early 1920s, though tired and aggravated, decided not to retire. Video games saved him. Were you fast to pick up on that, or did you resist that at first? No, I loved it right away. The minute it came out, I saw a different light in this business, and it gave me a lot of encouragement to remain. Huh. The, because I was about ready to give up, regardless if I made a living or not. Uh, I figured with my age already, I'm getting old, and what's the use of continuing? And then uh, you don't have the proper, uh, uh, some of the proper people around that's giving you a headache and uh, giving you uh, arguments and stay. So by having the video games and business coming up all right, so I kept on uh, plugging away and uh, keep staying and I'm still here. That's what were all. the names of the old games? Uh, were they different 40 well, years ago than they were? 10 years ago? Oh, sure. Because that's before my yeah. time. What were they like 40 well, years ago? Well, 40 years ago we had the old movies. The old... Nickelodeons? Uh, where you put a penny in. We used to run the machines for pennies. And uh, you put a penny in and you look into these mutoscope movies where you turn uh, yeah. the handle and how it started in the movies before it elevated itself the way you see. Is it called Nickelodeon? Well, uh, I would call it uh, Penny Arcades. Yeah. See? Is he cranking? See, right? Yeah, cranking. And then there were... What would they show? Say, the Joe Lewis fights? Uh, well, uh, they wouldn't show in those days Joe Lewis fights. But uh, in the earlier days, they would show uh, like the... Uh, Zigfield Folly Girls or... It must have been hot stuff uh, back then. No, all in bathing suits and girls... Uh, then, that was probably... See, uh, girls playing basketball and Charlie Chaplin pictures and uh, and, uh, and uh, Ben Turbin pictures. Uh -huh. And then it showed some of the fights of Jack Dempsey and Carpentier. And it showed uh, other popular fighters and that's how we survived. That was one kind of game, but with a skittle ball, was that? Uh, there was baseball games, the games of skill. You couldn't run no pinballs, because the law was against it, so we never ha operated pinball. Pinball machines were actually banned in New York for 35 years. Before the machines added flippers, it was considered a game of chance, not skill. So there was a whole uproar about it being a gambling vice for juvenile delinquents. A mob-run coin business, just like jukeboxes, considered a time-and-dime waster for kids and their lunch money. They also bumped and tilted the machines to alter the ball's motion. So right after we entered World War II, New York Mayor LaGuardia rounded up thousands of pinball machines, arrested owners, and publicly smashed the machines with sledgehammers, then dumped them in the river. It wasn't until 1976 that pinball was proven to be a game of skill, and the ban was overturned. We operated uh, athletic machines, uh, baseball machines, 
movie machines, not no peep shows. No. We all operated just one and put a girl a bikini on. We were in trouble at that time. Did you ever try that? Yes, we did, and we were told to remove them. And we removed them, and I, don't, I didn't want them. When anymore. was that about? Oh, this was in 1940 something there. Huh. 40, no, 1953, I think it was, 54, something wow. like that. Yeah. And we removed them and didn't want them anymore. Can you imagine if a modern-day porn hub scene suddenly appeared back then on one of those crank-handle kinescopes? Guys would have fainted and had heart attacks. And then from a penny, we started, the, started to raise it to two pennies, and then we started for a nickel, and then a dime, and today it's a quarter because the machines in those days were $35, $40, up to $100 today. The games run from two thousand to four thousand dollars to buy. So, to buy, but you cannot uh, get it for that kind of money. I mean, do you uh, own your machines here, or do yeah, they rent? Yeah, no, we we buy everything that comes out. Ah, you buy we them. Out, yeah. uh, we uh, had fortune-telling machines. Uh -huh, I remember those. And we still have the old grandmother that dispenses a card, mm -hmm. tells you your fortune or whatever it may be. We still have that, and that machine is with me since 1920. So that's already over 63 or 65 years that that one particular machine is with me, and I'm not giving it up. It's more of an antique and an attraction. It's not making any money. It's right out there? Yeah. It's not making any money, but I have it for an attraction of the old days of the Penny Arcade. That's wonderful. See? Did you have that in Harlem? Uh, I had, yeah, I had two of them in Harlem. Yeah. So and that then, would be your fake personal favorite? Yeah, and then we had the photograph machines, the picture machines that people used to come down and take four pictures for 10 cents. They needed it for different identifications, they wanted it for themselves. And, uh, that hasn't changed except uh, the price. No, just the price, and then we don't even get enough. Every place charges a dollar, and we still sell 50 cents. We don't make any money on it. The reason is that we put for 50 cents that the person that comes in waiting for the picture, for his photograph to come out of the machine, while he's waiting, he put in a coin, a nickel, a quarter, into another machine and enjoy himself until the picture comes out. Uh -huh. In 1983, there's virtually no new business that would open on 42nd Street that wasn't related to pornography. It's impossible to imagine a Disney store, Hello Kitty, or Mary Poppins playing in the New Amsterdam Theater, which was later to come. Well, if I would come here today and take a look at it, I would never go into business. I wouldn't want it because maybe I wouldn't have the experience as I grew into this here uh -huh. business and I would never come here. Uh, but being that I have the experience from way back and handling all kind of people, so my experience keeps me going that I do not, I'm not as scared of any individual that tries to threaten me, see? You have male hookers. Mm -hmm. Those hookers body every day. They get summonses from police, they tear the summonses up, and they're back on our street. They're not going to change their location. Then the girls are wasting the fellas. Those girls that hang around use very bad language, and there's nothing you can do with them. 
Charlie won his hearing to remain open until 3 a.m. Now I'll describe his location. Down a short flight of steps at the 8th Avenue subway was a mezzanine with a newsstand, a barber shop that opened in 1935, and Charlie's Penny Arcade. Down a second set of steps was the A-Train. Charlie's Arcade had no doors, no gate, no shutters, just a wide open entrance. He hung a little chain across the premises, sort of like a rope used at the front of nightclubs, hardly enough to keep trespassers out when the arcade was closed. It wasn't until 1980 that the Metropolitan Transit Authority ordered him to install a $10,000 glass front. But since I got the front, these bums already walked by and broke my glass. And it cost me $140. You had insurance on this? See, thing? they don't give you no insurance down there. Down there. So it they don't give me you insurance on this corner in 42nd Street? They don't give me no insurance here. I was lucky That's to just funny. get. I just got I just got fire insurance just now, with restrictions and everything else. They, I just got fire insurance. So, so when this bump broke the glass, my man had him arrested. This you, was you a caught the ago. guy. Yeah, caught the guy. And uh, I said, "What'd you want to hit the glass for? What'd you break it?" He says, "Well, I felt like it." Is it a black kid or was yeah, it an old? It's one of these black fellas. That's no, we don't have any whites here. See, they're very few. So. Anyway, we locked him up. It took one year. The fellow walked in last week, and he's looking for me, and he says, I want to pay you for the glass. Huh? And he paid me for the glass. After he broke the glass. That's hard to believe. Yeah, he paid for the glass. I says, why don't you be good? I says, why don't you walk around nice? What's the use? It's just as easy to be right than it is wrong, I says. It doesn't pay. Look, he says, you know what else? They stole my motorcycle. I lost my job account of this here and all that. I says, it doesn't pay. You're growing up to be a grown man. He did man, it because see? he was pressured into doing it. Well, I don't know what it is, but he did it. He broke it. And right after that, two weeks later, I get another guy he comes over and throws a bottle. I said, what the hell is he throwing a bottle? He meant to throw the bottle on a guy. And the guy ducked and hit the glass, and I broke that. So that guy got away. Charles Rubenstein held out on 42nd Street longer than any other individual I knew of. But had he lived to be a hundred, New York's miraculous drop in crime would have astounded him. 42nd Street again became a boulevard where decent Americans like your aunt from Dubuque could once again stroll without being attacked or molested. No more trap them, kill them show cards, fuckholes, and Rikers Island inmates. 42nd Street, where the dirtiest sex known to man had once flourished, was finally castrated. It became a corporate urban theme park fit for a eunuch. Retailtainment, see the show, bite a crap, became the new pornography of West 42nd Street. At this moment today, there's some fast food chain called Villa Pizza on this ever-changing corner of 8th Avenue and 42nd, with a Weston Hotel above. The arcade is long gone. It was a place for New Yorkers, be they from the ghetto or from old Broadway. Everything across 42nd Street is now just for tourists. This is Josh Allen with Tales of Times Square, the tapes. <laughs>